Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Swami Kecharanatha, whose nickname is Nataji. You might be referring to him that way during the interview. Swami Kecharanatha has been teaching Kundalini Maha Yoga since 1972. With a mastery etched from more than four decades of inner practice and selfless service, he is an authentic adept of Tantric Shaivism and an initiated carrier in the Shaktipat lineage of Bhagavan Nityananda and Swami Rudrananda, Rudi. Kecharanatha is the spiritual leader of the Trika Shala and director of Rudramandir, a center for spirituality and healing located in Berkeley, California. So, thanks for joining me today. Glad to be here. For those who have listened to a lot of my interviews, I also interviewed Stuart, Stuart Perrin, who was a disciple of Rudrananda and yes. who was actually in the plane when it crashed, when, yes, when Rudy died. And he wrote a nice book about that. Usually the way these interviews work best is if we do a mixture of you know, your biographical history, the, the story of your own spiritual odyssey, uh, mixed in with the, what you actually teach and what Kashmir Shaivism is and what Shaktipat is and all the sort of knowledge aspects that I'm sure you have to impart. So we don't need to do those sequentially necessarily, but it might be good to start with the, the historical thing and then we'll, we'll kind of uh, play it by ear as we go along. Okay. All right. I think you were born, where were you born? Some unusual place. Well, I was born in the Midwest. Oh, uh, that's not so unusual. No, no, yeah. <laughs> and my family kind of hailed from Texas. My father was in the oil business. So I spent most of my life overseas. Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember you went to Tierra del Fuego or some such thing. And then yeah, no, Tierra del Fuego. Northern of Africa and all over the yeah, place. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I spent basically from the time I was about five years old through my uh, senior year in high school, uh, mostly living overseas, we would come home to Texas for, for our summer breaks. But it must you, have been I, kind of fun in a way, you know? It was, it was great, you know, and I feel like I've matured a lot as a person because of being exposed to lots of different cultures. So I, I appreciated that experience a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Pick up some languages? Well, I picked up a little Spanish when I lived in South America. Then when I went to Libya and learned French, I lost the Spanish. And then I lost the French pretty fast. <laughs> Especially <laughs> so. in Texas. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Okay. So then, as I understand it, when you were a teenager, you were pretty much an atheist. And then some things happened to wake you up out of that. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, my family were Methodist uh, which really meant they went to church every few months and sang some nice hymns. And that was really the kind of the extent of my religious upbringing. And I think through the normal, difficult experiences that teenagers have as they're growing up, I began to think, man, this is, life isn't so great here, you know, so it can't be a God that's creating this and then making me suffer, etc., right? So I stopped really believing that there was some higher power that was here to really give us an, an extraordinary life. And it was really a belief system that I kind of overlaid over myself as opposed to something that I deeply felt in myself. And then it be just becomes your story, right? Right. Uh, but, you know, I, I did not pursue any kind of religion, you know, through those high school years, etc., and really disbelieved in it. And that changed. So I'm fortunate about that. So. Yeah, I guess I, I think I heard you say some friend had gone to see Rudy and uh, told you about this big guy with a bald head that really sort of had a, a, a big effect on him and that piqued your interest. Yeah, that was right. You know, I, probably in one of the, in the 
if you probably would say kind of the deepest and darkest part of my 17th, 18th, 19th year, I was, I guess, I guess it was about 19. One of my friends went, I was living in West Texas at the time, and he went to East Texas to uh, do some business. And when he came back, he hadn't done the business that he had gone to do, but he said, you know, I, I went to this meditation place and I, I sat in this room with this enormous man with a bald head and there was all this energy in the room and and you know people were were having these powerful experiences and he said yeah it was really pretty cool and that was kind of the extent of of what he said to me and at the time you know okay fine you know glad you did it now why didn't you do business right uh but the amazing thing rick was that literally within a week to two weeks after that i woke up one morning and all i could do was think about god just all of a sudden there was this place in me that was saying, I want to know that. I, I, I need to know that. I went from becoming, being a, a meat and potatoes person all my life. Literally, potatoes and green beans were the extent of my, my vegetables. I became a vegetarian overnight. I started doing hatha yoga about four hours a day and just started turning myself inside. Just in, I think in response to something that I didn't really know what what I was responding to. I always think so, past lives when I hear stories like that, like, you know, you, you had built up a lot of spiritual momentum and it was, it, it was time for it to resume. Exactly right. And, and I describe it, it really is, it's kind of coincides with that, but it really is just the grace of, of some higher power. And that really is what I felt happens. My friend said this, I started kind of penetrating, uh, looking into spiritual work, lived in the West Texas at the time. Shortly after that, moved to Colorado. whole time I'm in Colorado, people are saying to me, you know, you ought to go to Indiana. It's the greatest place on earth. Okay, well, after about 50 of those people telling me that, getting tired of Colorado, I went to, to Indiana. And three days after I'm there, I'm walking down the street. I look up and I see this poster. And it's this large man with a bald head and these penetrating eyes. And I said, oh, that's who my friend was telling me about. He never knew the person's name. He didn't know anything, you know, what his name was, anything like that. And it just clicked. Uh, that's who it was. And the next night he was given a lecture uh, in, in Bloomington, Indiana. And I went and, as they say, the rest is history. And it really was for me, in a sense, that that grace just dropping enough nourishment on that seed inside for it start to grow and it took about a year a year and a half for that kind of emerge out of me enough that i was able to then to meet rudy that was wonderful for me it may seem a little esoteric but in my own life i have i sometimes think i think of incidents that happened things i did when i was a teenager teenager and i think i should have died then you know i mean that was so crazy what i was doing and i and i sort of feel like based upon what i've done with my life since then I was being saved for something, you know. I, I, there, there was some kind of contract or prearranged. You know, I mean, maybe this is just imaginary, but prearranged sort of destiny that I had to fulfill, and you know, I was protected so that I could fulfill it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, I I describe my life as BR and AR before Rudy and and after Rudy, because you know, my life before I met Rudy was, you know, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of confusion. And from the moment I met him, there was a light that went off that started to dissipate all that confusion. And, and I've 
done my best for the last 42 years to try to allow that that light to show itself. And, you know, again, I, I really understand and that was just the grace calling me back to myself. And the important thing is that we respond to grace. Yeah. Nice. And for those who don't know much about Rudy, he was a Westerner, right? He was a, I think he had a business as an art dealer or something in New York City. Yeah, Rudy was a, a, an American. He lived in New York. He was, he was Jewish. He had an art business of importing Oriental art from Asia. Probably was one of the original key people who really began to import antiques and stuff out, out of India and Tibet and China. You know, he grew up through the Depression, had a really very difficult life, but early on began to have some spiritual calling in himself. And then he studied with Pak Subud for a while and Gurdjieff and really died when he was 45. So his spiritual practice really became in earnest, you know, in the when he was late, you know, early to mid 20s and stuff. And then kind of the most pivotal time for Rudy was around 1961. He went to India again on a buying trip, and someone told him about this this saint named Bhagavan Nichananda, who lived uh, it's about 60 miles outside of uh, Mumbai in a little town called Ganeshpuri. And he went there, and he met Rudy, and he defines that as the defining moment of his life. And people may recall that Swami Nityananda was uh, Swami Muktananda's guru. Um, that's that's right. Rudy Rudy was in fact. Uh, Nityananda passed away in 61. Rudy met him in 1959 and probably only was in his presence two or three times. And then after 61, when uh, Nityananda took Mahasamadhi, Rudy became the student of Muktananda for about 10 years. And in fact, was the person who brought Muktananda to the United States uh, the first two world tours that he did. Why is Muktananda not mentioned much when you read, you know, the history of your history and your lineage and all that? Is did Rudy consider Muktananda somehow just a the, the the reason that he's not mentioned is that in 1971 Rudy broke from from Muktananda. There was a, an official break, if you will. His relationship with Muktananda was very powerful, and Muktananda had enormous energy, and Rudy took a lot from him. His primary relationship with Muktananda was because of the amazing relationship that he had with Nichananda, mostly after Nichananda died. And in a sense, he was using the energy of, his, of Muktananda to, to gather strength in himself to further that relationship with, with Nichananda. The relationship with Muktananda was difficult, and there was at a certain point where he, he made a break from that. So now it was before I ever met Rudy uh, a couple of years. And in every organization, every student-teacher relationship, there's always the dynamics. And so Rudy stayed with him for about 10 years and then felt it was time to make a break from him. So that's why he's not really part of our history. So, And I wouldn't personally have a problem with that. For many people, a per- association with a particular teacher is a, is a transitional thing. You know, it, it may serve its purpose for a certain number of years, and then at a certain point it doesn't serve its purpose anymore. And lifelong commitment is not necessarily the name of the game and um, you know you're not necessarily flaky if you <laughs> if you move on to something else at a certain point that's right because really the the role of the teacher is to support the freedom that's trying to take place in the student and the student has to know in themselves whether that support is there and and at a certain point that freedom expands to the point where as you said the the that particular relationship doesn't really serve that anymore 
And so it's never about a teacher holding on to students. It's about freeing them to, to find themselves. Yeah. I was in the TM movement for many years, and uh, you know, at a certain point, Deepak Chopra was in the TM movement, and he had a very close relationship with Maharishi. And at a certain point, it just didn't fit anymore. You know, he was too independent in his thinking, kind of too creative, and so on, to fit into the mold of an organizational hierarchy. Right. And uh, so, you know, he struck out on his own, not with any sour grapes, but it was just okay. It's time for me to move on. And obviously, he has done a lot of things he could never have done had he stayed in the context of of that organization. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So you met Rudy in uh, 72, I believe you said? And it was late 71, actually October 10th of 1971. Right. And actually, before we get into that, uh, did Rudy's spiritual practice consist of, I mean, mainly Shaktipad and being in the presence of Nityananda and Muktananda, or did they advocate a particular practice that he engaged in for so many hours a day or something? Both. The, the work that he gave us, which was an uh, internal meditation practice, which was focusing on the awakening of the Kundalini within, you know, our psychic bodies. Rudy, you know, taught that. He, he actually developed a couple of different breathing techniques, meditation practices that seemed to be, if you will, of his own creation. Which and, were conducive to awakening the Kundalini. Which, which were conducive of, of really bringing our awareness into the psychic body, channeling that through all the chakras and allowing it to rise back up through and out the center of the head. And I would say that, so he, he taught what, gave us what he called the double breath, which is simply using of, of two breaths, but mostly it's the internalization of our, of our, the energies of our life and our mind and et cetera, putting it back through the psychic body and creating a, becoming aware of and establishing ourselves in a, a flow of energy inside, to feel that intrinsic shakti that it moves through our system. And I would say probably that was one of the, the really key gifts of Rudy was, was that very powerful focus on finding and establishing that flow in ourselves in our meditation, but then also as we move through our day, as we walk through our day. So meditation wasn't something that we sat for three hours and then went about our business. We meditated for three hours and then as, you, as we moved through our day, he taught us that we can have the capacity to feel our heart open, to feel this energy moving through us, and to feel, a, if you will, a vertical flow within ourselves. So we're connected to that higher spiritual force. And we can also extend that flow from our own center and connect to the people, the dynamics that we're engaged in with life. So he described that as vertical flow and horizontal flow. And that, that emphasis on flow and the importance of you being aware of that flow at, at every moment of your day was a powerful, powerful experience for people. And, and not, to be honest, not something that, that a lot of practices emphasize. You know, you meditate and then, okay, go, go away and then come back tomorrow and meditate, right? Nothing wrong with meditation, but... You know, in a sense, it's saying life meditation is is about consciousness and being aware at all moments. So that was one of the real fundamental strengths of Rudy's practice. Did you find um, that in doing something all day, in addition to your regular meditation, it was perhaps slightly distracting? I mean, if you had to run a business or do something that demanded a lot of focused attention, was there a sort of division of the mind if you're trying to focus your attention on your job and at the same time maintain awareness of your breath or whatever the, the mm -hmm. nature of the technique was? You know, that's a question that I get often as I teach and stuff. And 
I think what takes a while for people to understand is that we function within multiple dimensions of consciousness within ourselves. And so our, our mind, our brain is there to function and engage the world and make decisions and type and all that stuff. And we can do that while at the same time be aware from a, in a different place in ourselves, in, in our psychic body. And those can go on simultaneous without conflicting with each other. So we don't have to stop meditating in order to focus or stop focusing in order to meditate. And that's a very powerful experience when you begin to really understand and experience that you can function from both places because it starts to, to really give us insight that life is energy. And all these energy, different frequencies of energy, if you will, one frequency that functions from the mind, another that functions from the heart, etc. Those are all a matrix, of, you know, a weave of energies that are happening. And the practice of Kundalini Yoga is to become aware and of all those energies and to function within all of them at the same time. So is there a bit of an ebb and, ebb and flow? Uh, so, for instance, like if you're driving down the highway and there's not much going on, you could pretty much be very much aware of this energy thing. But then all of a sudden, if some guy cuts in front of you and you have to deal with an emergency situation, you're, you're going to forget about that because your attention is demanded. In Yes, because one doesn't counteract the other. And so, and ultimately, the experience that people want to have is that you can be in the, the deepest, most profoundly still place in yourself at every moment and deal with the truck coming at you on the highway, you know, without losing that contact with yourself. So again, it becomes and not a juggling act. You're juggling all the balls at once and, and you don't have to lose one in order to deal with the other. Mm. Right. What I find actually is that sometimes in the more demanding situations, the, the inner silence becomes more noticeable. Like if you're running through an airport or something and it's all crazy, the, the contrast between the silence and the, and the craziness is more obvious than if you're just sitting at your desk doing an email or something. That, that's right. And, and the, such the power of, of, of really that is that we under, start to understand that that presence, that stillness, is the source of all that noise, if you will. It's the source of all that energy. And so by maintaining our contact with that source, we can then engage with all the resonances that that creates because they're not separate from each other. We don't have to, to separate one to, in order to deal with the other. In addition to teaching the kind of practice you described, did Rudy do Shaktipat? Yes. So that meditation practice of the double breath and really focusing on that flow was really the discipline practice that we all, that he gave to us. You do this, right? You know, and you, that you give to your students still? Yeah, and, and that we, I still give to Rudy. That, that double breath is the foundational breathing te meditation technique, if you will, of, of our practice. And if somebody and, wanted to learn that, I mean, we haven't really provided adequate description just now, right? They'd have to right. do something more formal to... Really uh, yeah, there's... Learn. You know, they would want to go to a class with somebody who, you know, teaches this. And we give an introduction where people learn that uh, before they come to class. So before they come to our, what we call eyes open class, which is transmission of Shaktipat, then they have to come to the intro, learn the breathing exercise, understand that they're basically going to be sitting, looking, facing the teacher. He's going to be facing you with, you know, with his eyes open. And that's an interesting experience for some people just inherent in that. That meditation technique is the technique we use in our private meditation, and it's the same technique that we use as we're sitting in class and receiving Shaktipad, right? Because there are, Shaktipad translates as the descent of grace. It's the transmission of a spiritual force. And there are four 
ways that, that Shaktipat is transmitted, through the eyes, through the touch, through word or thought. And depending on the, the mastery of the teacher, those may have different power held within them. But the open eyes class, the open eyes transmission and the touch is the strongest because it, there's more of a direct experience, particularly the student can be more aware of it, right? And so Rudy's class, what, what we call open eyes class, is sitting in class with the students facing the teacher and that eyes open transmission of that spiritual force. And then after the eyes open part, then the teacher would move around the room and place his hands on on the forehead or the heart chakra and, and again, transmit that energy, right? I would say that is Rudy's teaching, is the transmission of Shaktipat. And that's not particularly common, even though tradition, historically through tantric Shaivite practices, it's, it's understood. It's not something that there's that much of uh, going on at the moment, and particularly when Rudy started teaching it. Right. And, you know, obviously a person has to be really qualified to do it. And he, any old guy can't just go start doing Shakti, but he's got to have the Shakti to, <laughs> to do it. Well, you, you, yeah. would, you would think so. <laughs> yeah. You hope so, yes. Yeah. Right. I, I can think of a couple of examples. I mean, Maharshi Mahesh Yogi, I think, probably did it through his words. He was an eloquent speaker. But yeah. in his presence, there was a profound influence. Your whole consciousness would shift. And, uh, you know, Amma, the hugging saint, does it through touch. Exactly. Uh, because ultimately, yeah, you're right. It's, it is that grace, that presence that's being transmitted whether it's look or touch or thought or, or even reading a book, you know, somebody's words. Uh, to be honest, that is only limited by the student in the sense of their state of preparation to receive, right? Yeah, in fact, I just got an email from somebody this morning who said that uh, her first Kundalini experience, which was apparently quite profound, uh, was she was working at an office in New York and somehow or other she picked up a copy of Muktananda's book and just looked at his picture and she, she totally got zapped. Yeah, I don't even think she knew who Muktananda was at the time. <laughs> right, right, right. Who's this guy on the back of this book? That's yeah. right. It happens a lot because it's inherent power that's ready to spring forth, if you will, and to, in a sense, grace finds its own recipient. When some higher awareness is trying to awaken in a person, it calls forth to itself that the energy that it needs to awaken, right? And that's grace. So you started doing this with Rudy back when you first met him. You did it for a year and a half until Rudy passed away. And, uh, but he also qualified you as a teacher early on. Yeah, um, I met him in October, uh, and I actually started teaching the following May. So just six so months or something? About, about six months. And, yeah. you know, I still scratch my head. At, he, clearly he could see more about me than I could see about myself at the time. So I was very fortunate to receive that initiation from him. And he, of course, initiated a number of people uh, at, at that time. And we all had different ashrams. There was a, a group of ashrams in the Midwest, 10 or 12 of them, and another 8 to 10 or so in, in Texas. Stuart Perrin was the person who originally started the, the ashram in Texas. And a man named Chaitanananda was the person who started the ones in Bloomington, Indiana, and that's where I met Rudy. Rudy wanted to to develop ashrams and, and develop teachers, you know, so he started a lot of us when we, we were young. Right. When you started teaching at that young age, after having only been with him for six months, um, 
when you look back on that now, do you feel like you were pretty green by comparison with the way you are now? I mean, I, I started teaching very young, too. I became a TM teacher when I was 21. And when I look back at that, I was just like this crazy kid, you know. I had something, but uh, I definitely, there definitely was plenty of room for maturation and deepening and, and whatnot. And still yeah, is for that of course. And th thank God, because... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I wasn't even a green apple that was waiting to ripen and turn red. I wasn't even the seed yet at that point. But, and, you know, one of the wonderful things about this particular practice and, and is that because of the transmission of Shaktipat, that is the teaching. Even as a young person, that seed is installed in you, that energy is, is released in you. You're given the instruction on how to set and, and, and if you will, transmit that energy. And from that moment to this moment and 30 years later, it's all about the deepening of our capacity to surrender and allow that vital force, that spiritual force to move through us. In a sense, being a 21-year-old didn't limit that on one level because it wasn't my energy that I was trying to transmit, my wisdom I was trying to transmit, it was really trying to get out of the way. And of course, 42 years later, then fortunately I can get out of the way a little more so that it, it does grow. But I guess, you know, when you're young, that young, you know, you don't really... You don't think you're much, young. You, know? you don't <laughs> think you're young. You know, it's not as much self-reflection as you probably <laughs> should be. So I never really sat around, oh, I don't really know how to do this, or maybe I shouldn't be doing this, or I'm limited. A, I was grateful for the explosion of my heart when I met Rudy, and when he asked me to teach, all I could do is, of course, say yes and try to do what I could to to honor that. So. so in retrospect then, you know, after having been with him for six months, there was, and you were starting to do Shaktipat of some kind, some transmission, eyes open thing. You feel that there was definitely some benefit to people even then after such a short time of, of study that you were actually transmitting something. Yes, yes, because I mean, I think anybody that would initiate somebody like that, certainly I've initiated people you have to see some capacity for them to let go of themselves, to get out of the way. Obviously, Rudy saw that in myself, or he wouldn't have, have done it. In some ways, I would say the experience that people had with me, as I said in class, 42 years ago and now, is only different by the degree of intensity. The, the energy was still there, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, usually when you hear Kundalini, you know, you hear all sorts of horror stories about how difficult it is and how people are you know, screaming and writhing on the floor and fire going up their spines and you know, ending up in a mental hospital and you know, just all kinds of, it's scary. You know? And we right. hear stories of misdirected kundalini and prematurely awakened kundalini and, and uh, you know, without proper guidance and so on and so forth. Uh, in fact, just, uh, just this morning, again, I get a lot of emails. A friend of mine who knew I was going to interview and who went through the whole kundalini thing and, and fortunately came out smooth and clear on the other side uh, said, um, it can be dangerous. One needs close guidance if on that trip, and most don't get it. They're playing with fire, and depending on the sensitivity of one's nervous system, uh, physiologically as well as psychologically, it can be a disaster. Even if it does result in Shiva meeting Shakti, which is rare, it doesn't necessarily mean that one lands in the true self, as Ramana said. And she goes on. But, you know, the point she's making is that it can be difficult and dangerous. And uh, I'm sure you've heard all that and taken it into account. And maybe you yourself went through some difficult periods. I don't know. So could you address that? Uh, yeah. And, you know, it, it is a question that I get a lot. And people say to me, should I be afraid of my kundalini 
awakening, and I say I would be afraid if it doesn't. In ancient tantric Shaivite practices, of which the practice of Kundalini is, is the goal, the purpose, within its own exposition is that our freedom to know God is only achieved through the awakening of that Kundalini, of that, that Kundalini which is we are dormant to its force within us and we awaken it and allow it to move up through the psychic body and to, if you will, to, to burn through the impurities, the, the levels of misunderstanding with this. And so it's understood that as that energy rises back through the psychic body, through our psychic body, burning away those blocks, etc., that in a sense it's returning back to its source, which is Shiva, which is consciousness. As it is released, you are infusing a powerful force into Again, every dimension of yourself, it's awakening inside this psychic body, but it has to impact our mental and emotional states, etc. And it can be uh, challenging, and it can be scary for people. And there are instances where people have a spontaneous awakening, if you will. But here's a couple things that I'd say about that. There is no spontaneous awakening of Kundalini. Kundalini decides to awaken in us. That is Shiva's own creative force which creates us as a universal as a universe as an individual and sustains us as a universe and it it decides that it's going to awaken it's not like some teacher decides okay i'll awaken their kundalini even going to be in a presence of a teacher who might be able to do that is that innate energy already calling forth from itself in the process what happens is that our limited perspective our limited views our our limited understanding of who we really are definitely gets challenged definitely gets challenged the lucky people in that process are people who understand that that intensity is part of the process that it's part of the process of if you will having our own misunderstanding burnt out of us right and that's why kundalini is referred to as fire having said that without guidance it becomes a challenge for people we certainly know that particularly in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of people who were, who were diagnosed as not quite sane that really were was a, a kundalini awakening in their body. And, of course, traditional medicine knew nothing about that, and so they couldn't do anything except try to drug them. Right? I think it's happening even now. And, yes, and exactly. I get emails from people, you know, because this show is out there, and, and right. people in various stages of realization of what's happening to them, you know, some of them realize that something good is happening, and they just need to find a teacher to help them deal with it. And others, right. you know, it's like, what's wrong with me? You know, do I have some disease or something? Right, yeah. yeah. You know, you reach your finger into the electric socket, it's, it's going to affect all the different systems within you, you know, that power. And if, if we don't have the, the mechanism to open and channel that energy through us, then what happens is as, as this energy is released in the psychic body, if we don't really understand how to keep it flowing within the psychic body, then it immediately infuses that energy into the mind, into the emotional states, and it's a big impact. And most people can't handle that kind of elevated strength into it. So the, the answer is when that's happening, A, I would always just go find somebody who knows, <laughs> knows how to guide you through it, right? Find somebody who can not only guide you emotionally and mentally through it, but can give you the techniques to, to channel that energy back in yourself. I mean, I think in one sense that's, that's the only solution, is to be able to, to learn how to, to channel that energy back into the psychic body from which it's being released, right? Because as soon as it gets into the mind, it gets into the emotions, it's just too powerful and, and it presses against the boundaries of the mind and, and the emotions. 
Right. And what would the symptoms of that be? What would be a person be experiencing if that were happening? Like fear and emotional volatility uh, uh, and stuff uh, like that? Exactly right. Exactly right. And you'll still experience all that even with the guidance, right? But you'll understand it as part of the process. And you, more, most important, there, you have a mechanism for, for, tran, for, for channeling that, for transcending that level in ourselves that's being pressed by the whole thing, right? Because... Uh, again, in, in Shaivite practices, it's understood that the mind, the emotional states are, are limited states of consciousness within a human being. Again, this awakening of Kundalini is awakening us to higher levels of consciousness. It's called resistance, right? The ego resists being changed. It resists having its own boundaries being broadened. And that's where the most of the suffering really happens. And so people begin to learn if you will, they can burn with the process. They can burn with their emotions. They can burn with their fears. They, they can still find some place of clarity and stillness, even in the midst of all that. And doesn't mean it's easy, but it's more possible when we hold clear to what we're really trying to accomplish in our life. I think just the knowledge that something good is happening can go a long way to you know, making it easy. Because if you don't think that, you, you're struggling against it. You know, you're recoiling and reacting and so on, but if, you, if you're convinced that, ah, this is a blessing, you know, something good's happening here, then you can begin yeah. to cooperate. It can make a world of difference. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And unfortunately, some people, this happens to them, you know, and they don't know that. They don't know what's happening at all, so they don't even know to, to ask, is this good or bad? It's just, it feels bad and, you know, et cetera. And, run to and a doctor. Run to a doctor, right? And they unfortunately don't know how to deal with it, so... Well, that kind of loops back to something you said a few minutes ago, which is that you, know, you don't decide to awaken Kundalini, it decides when to awaken, which implies that it's intelligent, it's not just right. some abstract energy, and hopefully it implies that it's benign. You know, it's not going to awaken in someone who can't handle it, but we're kind of alluding to situations in which it does. So why would it awaken in someone who hasn't, hasn't a clue what it, what's going on and who may not have undergone enough purification to be able to deal with it. It doesn't happen. Very often. Well, ever. It all. never opens unless maybe through a series of past lives, you know, et cetera, a person has, is ready for that. And in this particular incarnation, you know, they kind of forgot enough blankets have been thrown over the light. They didn't really get it. And so, you know, if you will, you know, there's a saying, Shiva never gives you more than you can handle, right? And that's really true. We just don't know it. We don't know that we can handle it. Because look, Kundalini, the way you would, would define Kundalini is that Kundalini is the individuated expression of the divine. We are alive because of that Kundalini. There's three fundamental levels that we, under, that we understand that it, Kundalini, which is, is the prana Kundalini, which is the, the, the force, the life force of our breath that's giving life to our physical bodies. We all know, you stop breathing, boom, you're gone, right? That's called prana kundalini. Chit kundalini is the life of our mental and emotional states. We have a body, we have mind, we have an emotion, all different dimensions, and what's called para kundalini is that life force of our spiritual self. They're never separate from each other in that sense, but that triad of, of understanding of how the kundalini creates an individual is the understanding that, that the practice of kundalini is, is attempting 
to happen. And so over time, we begin to understand we are not who we think we are. We're not alive because we have a body. We're not who we are because we have a mind. We are simply Shiva incarnate in that sense. We are an individuated expression of that divine force. How could that divine force that created us ever harm us? It created us, and it created it out of its own expression of freedom. Coming to that place of understanding, okay, a few years of sadhana is necessary. Right? Right. <laughs> yeah, and I think you can even broaden that, you know, to say that in the big picture, if you zoom the lens back far enough, everything that's happening to everybody, kundalini or anything, uh, is ultimately part of a grand evolutionary scheme. Getting hit by a bus might not seem like such a good thing to have happen, but in the biggest picture of things, it's sort of all is well and wisely put. You know, I mean, either God is omniscient and, and is permeating every iota of creation, or he either doesn't exist or he's, he's isolated off in some corner you know, and is, is more or less helpless. I prefer the first scenario. That's right, and he's not just sometimes omniscient, right? Right. It, it's not just omniscient when, when we like what he's doing for us or to us, right? And that's really part of the challenge of, of sadhana, of spiritual practice for people, is to get past the du- duality of our own minds enough to be able to see the perfection in life, even in the intensity, the, di- the, the challenging moments, all the adversity, that in fact that adversity is created from within us, projected on our own screen of consciousness to show us our own misunderstanding. Hmm. Right. And when you say something like that, someone might think, well, that sounds awfully cruel. I mean, what about the people in the Holocaust? You know, what about a child who's sexually abused? Did they create that to show them their own misunderstanding? Uh, but again, you know, if we feel like that ultimately there's an evolutionary momentum that is governing and, uh, and motivating all life towards a, uh, you know, final sort of awakening or realization, then how could anything be outside of the realm of that? You know, how, how That's right. So, so it all has to be perfect. And so then the reality is that we experience difficult situations. We die before we're supposed to be, die, etc. For a number of reasons, karma being one of them. But even stepping back from karma, it is the evolution of consciousness itself and us as individuated expressions that, and our own individuated expression is is has one goal, you know, it's the salmon swimming upstream, it's to get back home. And so people die, you know, the good they do die young, well, all that means is they're moving to the next life so they can keep going, right? Yeah, might be time for an upgrade. Exactly right. I mean, you know, Rudy died when he was 45. We're all thinking, hey, what's going on here, right? Yeah. Well, you know, he had freed himself. He was done. I always say to people, the two great gifts he gave to me was, living and dying, living and letting me know him, and then the moment of his death, for 30 seconds, man, I was ready to go with him, and, you know, you just never thought you'd survive it, and in the middle of it, and again, it was just great, in the middle of this intense anguish, something said to me, he's free, why are you unhappy, how could you be be unhappy for your own teacher, this is what he worked his entire life for, and so you're right, it's a question of how zoomed in the microscope is, and the problem is, we believe this is our life instead of understanding this is God's life, right? And God has a plan, which is to express his own freedom. And our individual lives is just part of the evolution of that. So Nice. Yeah. Reminded that Gita verse, you grieve for those for whom there should be no grief, yet speak to, as do the wise. Wise men grieve neither for the dead nor for the living. 
that's wonderful. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So, so you said a few minutes ago that um, you know Kundalini awakening is sort of a part and parcel with real, God realization. So I suppose we could presume that anybody who was God realized, Jesus or Buddha or whoever, must have had their Kundalini awakened, even though they may not have spoken in those terms. But it's sort of a universal procedure, you would say. Yes, in the sense that that ultimately a fully realized awakened kundalini is really the the samavesha the union of consciousness and the energy that expresses itself out of itself and that oneness is that experience really with that ultimate kundalini leads us to even the tantrics who practice kundalini they're not saying okay open this chakra do this feel this flow do that they're saying that it is the return of our individuated life force which is the kundalini back to its source, which is consciousness, that is the awakening of kundalini. For many people, that can happen without a lot of arduous practice and feeling this flow and that chakra, that's, a, it, that's, that's more rare. And in tantric practices, there are what are called the upayas. There, that's also exist in, in Buddhist practice, but, and the upayas means the means of liberation. And there are four, and they typically are talked about from the top down. Anupaya means no path. That means we're born, we open our eyes. There was born that way. Many great saints, this is the case, right? Certainly Nichananda, who was our the wellspring of our particular current lineage, was considered to be an avadut, a person who was, you know, born free, if you will, right? That anupaya means God is just manifest as an individual and they know they're God, right? Like an avatar. Like an avatar, yes, right. Avadut is the same word, yes, exactly. The next level down is called Shambhavapaya, which is the path of awareness, which means through our practice, sometimes just spontaneous, but through our practice, we merge back to that clarity of awareness that we are simply God expressing himself. And that's a real practice. Dzogchen, the highest practice in Dzogchen, when you hear people say, do nothing, well, they're really saying, you're not doing anything. God is doing all this stuff, right? And that's a powerful, a real understanding we all want to come to. And for some people, they didn't weren't just born to it, but just beginning through Shaktipat, through some point of grace, some practice, all of a sudden that, that awareness just shines forth, right? So that's the next level down, if you will. And the next one is called Shaktupaya, which is the path of energy. Again, that's that we're, we're understanding life as energy, we're understanding life as a dynamic flow, and we're understanding life as a dynamic flow being expressed out of consciousness. But the way back to that consciousness is through engaging ourselves and life as energy and, in a sense, consuming that energy and allowing it to rise back to to consciousness. And then the last one is called Anavopaya, which is the path of effort, the path of the individual, right? And this is where mantra and practice and service and all these things fit into that. So typically, those aren't linear exactly even though one may be more prominent than the other at a particular given time. They're a progression even though they're not linear. So most people come to a practice, some teacher gives them a breathing exercise and this and that, and you know they, they're making an individual effort. That individual effort ultimately connects them to the power of life, which they begin to function from that power, and that power begins to function through them, and they begin to understand that consciousness is the source of that power. And that's, in a sense, that's kind of the simple version of the upayas. 
seems like there must be a pyramid in which you know the the first upaya is at the peak and uh, very few people are fit there you yes. know, and then the pyramid broadens as it goes down and and the majority of people would be in, on the fourth one that you mentioned exactly per yeah. perfectly stated you know it's it's the food chain right, right the food right. pyramid <laughs> yes that that's exactly right and you know uh so we come into this life again through our own evolution through our own karma and as that awareness as that consciousness begins to awaken up in us right it in a sense it awakens to its own level somebody who just really through a few years of practice all of a sudden they just really function from that higher consciousness that if you will that's shambhavapaya and you know the next person may come in and have to dig ditches for 25 years just to be able to be in the presence of the guru you know traditionally that's what happened you know in the old days of india you come you want to practice with the guru okay fine go out there and i'll see you in 12 years go out there and dig some some ditches and what would they do and they were really giving that person the the, the opportunity to make an effort in themselves to feel qualified to receive because so many people don't feel qualified so then it's that simple effort qualifies people and maybe to burn off karma I just read exactly. a story right. the other day about Ramana Maharshi and he had some disciple and he just worked the guy really hard for about a dozen years and at a certain one day he just said okay you've burned off your karma now you can relax <laughs> <laughs> right right and you know for us those of us that did know Rudy you know, I always say I know him for two years. The reality it was about 16 months. But the last two years of Rudy's life, everybody that was around him, our experience was like it was 20 years, right? And everybody said, you know, that's, you know, you look up, well, I've been doing this for 20 years, and it happened to be two years. And that was the kind of acceleration of, of growth that happened for Rudy and therefore the people around him that could really take it and receive it. Of course, when he passed, a lot of people, it was aborted because it was just, they couldn't hold on to it, and understandably so. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like when we're little kids and a year can seem like a really long time, you know, because you're changing so fast, you're growing so fast during that period. Nowadays, if a year goes by, it's like, yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> right, yeah, that's right, yeah, that's right. And, you know, for our the experience of being around Rudy was, was timeless. I used to go, typically I would go on a thir Friday night, I would fly to New, York, to New York from Indiana, right, and I'd get there about 7 o'clock at night uh, on Friday, and I would leave Monday in, in the evening, and by Sunday morning, it's like, I don't know how long I've been here, but it's just forever, and there was just no time around him, because both the, ex the, the speed of, of the acceleration and the stillness in which it happened, and that was always an amazing experience. So all of us, you know, that, that knew Rudy always say, well, yeah, that two years, that was that was 20 years of our own lives and and in a sense that's part of why i think we were able to receive so much from him right was he the kind of guy when you'd sit in his presence and just the room was saturated with shakti and you'd walk in there and you just feel a, a transformation just from sitting there he just kind of radiated and filled the room with energy was that was that the nature of the experience uh, yeah you know i i call always speak of rudy as a tsunami of energy because it was just you walked in the room and it was it just it filled the room and expanded the room and after not very long of being around him you you realize don't enter that room until you're ready <laughs> don't enter that room until you're really open enough to receive it 
And he also let you know when you walked into the room and you weren't really open enough to receive it. <laughs> he Those was, who are listening, if they've never had that experience of being around someone who has that kind of influence, I, I really hope they find that opportunity because yes. it's, it's really precious. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. And it's, it, it is a transformative energy that, uh, you know, you can only be grateful for, really. Yeah. We haven't talked much about your own Kundalini awakening, and since Kundalini is sort of central to your whole teaching, did you go through discernible, definable stages of Kundalini awakening, some initial you know, eruption and then various stages and then some final culmination or some such thing? Interesting question. I would say there was, in a sense, there were phases of it, but not very discernible phases. Meeting Rudy in that first couple of years, it was just, intense and it's like every day you were a different person every day you, your brownies were being pried open so the two years that he was alive that we knew, that most of us knew him it was just like fighting a forest fire the whole time you know you're just there and so i would say the next 10 12 years after rudy passed was really same kind of intensity but it was the intensity of absorbing what we had received you know of really you know because when rudy integrating it because without his guidance, without his energy to sustain that bigness and that openness in us, then of course we start contracting, we start this and that. And so the work was really holding on to it. And in the process of holding on to it, then all your boundaries get threatened, all your boundaries get pressed. And you have to really learn to, to let go of, of your own limitations and who you think you are. And so that was really intense after Rudy died. And, and to be honest, Many people didn't survive it in the sense that they, they couldn't hold on to the, to the practice. Even most of the people that Rudy initiated as teachers stopped teaching within a couple of years, a few years after, after he passed. That's true of a lot of practices and of teachers course. and teachings. There's always an attrition. Exactly right. And I think Rudy, Rudy knew that. You know, he, he made a lot of people teachers. There's probably five people that I know of that are still teaching, right? Uh -huh. I always kind of talked about as Johnny Appleseed, you know. Yeah. He, he just kind of spread all Through the, the seeds. Through the seeds. Through the seeds. And, you know, Rudy, Rudy died when he was 45. He kept telling us he was going to die in a light plane. Mm -hmm. Why he kept getting in light planes. <laughs> okay, don't do that again, okay, right? But then he kept saying, I'm going to live till I'm 56. Right. Well, my personal belief is that he knew he was going to die when he was 45, and he just didn't want all, our, all of our emotional clinging to stop, <laughs> to, mm. to stop his process. But because he knew, in a sense, that he was moving on, and he had this incredible energy to share and to transmit and to give, he, he gave it a lot. And he, so he made a lot of people teachers in the hope that maybe it would stick in one of them, right? Mm. But he, he was not attached to whether it did or not. Yeah, I was reminded of a funny story. A friend of mine was in a small plane like that, a four-seater or something, with, with Maharshi one time, and they were going through all this turbulence, you know, and the plane was just, like, rocking all over the place. And my friend was really scared, and then he thought, oh, I'm okay, I'm with Maharshi, nothing could happen. Then Maharshi turned around and said, you know, I'll probably die in a small plane crash. <laughs> of course, <laughs> he, thinks, did, right. he didn't, but I guess he was just messing with him. You know, Rudy kept getting in the planes, and yeah. he kept saying, okay. And, it's kind yeah. of interesting to think that he could have known when he was going to die. I, I think that's one of the cities that Patanjali outlines is knowing the time of your death. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. I don't remember the, there's a Sanskrit term for it, but a person who is understood to be freed of all karma then has the 
freedom to choose their time of their death. And that's understandable because it's only our karma in a sense that, that binds us to this life. You know, whether he did or not, when I see him, I'm going to ask him, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now, let's get clear about this. Right. I'm reading a lot of stuff by David Godman right now because I'm going to be interviewing him next week. And he's the guy who wrote biographies of Ramana Maharshi and Nisargadatta and Papaji and, and you know, some other Indian saints and spent his whole life doing that. And most of these guys, uh, you know, when asked, well, how many people have actually gotten enlightened, you know, say you could count it on your fingers. You know, Papaji, I think, said, well, I know of two people, uh, Ramana Maharshi and some guy I know who lives in the jungle. And, you know, <laughs> Ramana Maharshi said, well, uh, my cow and my mother, you know. <laughs> so, right. I mean, what's your take on that? It's such a depressing to admit that most people probably don't become enlightened because why bother then, right? <laughs> right, in that sense. You know, when Nityananda passed, about three days before he, he passed, he was clearly dying, and one of his students went to him and said, Baba, please, don't go. We need you. And Nityananda looked at him and he says, if there were only three who really wanted what I have to give them, then I wouldn't go. And this is a person, like many great saints, literally he would see tens of thousands of people a day, right, in a, in a given month. And so I think it speaks to the incredible opportunity and yet the incredible uh, requirement to truly give our lives back to God so that, that it, the possibility of it can take place. Most of us don't give our lives back to God, and so it's not even in the realm of possibility. Only once we've done that can I think it really take place. And, you know, I guess the, the solace is that if you believe in karma, if you believe in our individuated expression moving from one life to another until it ultimately frees itself, then we better do as much work as we can in this life anyhow, right? And of course, many practices, the Tibetans, that talk about merits, etc., right, in terms of building good karma. And so what else are we going to do, right? I mean, otherwise, it's just, it's just we live a depressing life and there's no possibility for, to know God. And that's not a place I would want to live in, right? Make hay while the sun shines. Yes, exactly right, yes. And anyway, I mean, you get to a point where even if you would not consider yourself or would, or, or truly speaking, are not enlightened, uh, the spiritual practice has borne fruit to a, a great extent, and life is really nice. You know, I mean, it's you don't, you're not su you're not susceptible to a lot of the woes that that um, befall most people in this world. I, I think that's that's really a very important point, and I always say to people, you know, you'll never find enlightenment if if you can't find the joy of loving your own life, right? And coming to that place where we simply love our life and live in, in its perfection without trying to, to need it to change or stop it from changing, to just live in that place, that's profound freedom, right? And from that place, perhaps ultimate freedom can take place. But that freedom from, from suffering, if you will, that freedom from just being beat up by life, you know, and beating back on life, just moving from that place to that simple clarity of joy, that's, that's a pretty good, that's a good enough accomplishment, right? Yeah, that's big. In that sense, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So what do you make of all these people who were with Papaji or, you know, various other teachers and came back from India or whatever, uh, you know, proclaiming enlightenment or at least some profound awakening? Well, I, I have more I can say to that, but what, what would you say? <laughs> that's an interesting one. I think if you have to proclaim your enlightenment, Maybe there's a chance you're not. <laughs> well, somebody once asked Rudy, are you enlightened? Have you seen God? And he says, I've gotten up to his knees. Ah, oh, nice answer. 
Yeah, it was really great because we know of great saints. Nichananda, for example, is a person in Ireland. person didn't speak. He didn't sit around proclaiming any enlightenment or this or that. Ramana Maharshi, Shirdi Sai Baba, many great saints, not even just within Eastern-based religions, but some many great Christian saints, etc. You know, they just were there and they just were, were loving people and, and expressing that. And I think only the ego needs to somehow say, oh, I'm free of the ego. <laughs> Maybe that's what's meant by that phrase, those who say don't know and those who know don't say. That's, that's exactly right. That's huh. exactly right, yeah. So I think enlightenment is possible and desirable, and certainly for myself, if you will, that union with God is, is the focus of my life, and I at least attempt to make every decision in, that I make in, in relationship to that. The closer we get to God, then the more we know that it's possible to know him. So, but like Rudy, who said that he was up to God's knees, you would say, and you're probably saying right now, that you consider yourself a work in progress, like pr- pretty much everybody else on the planet. That, that's exactly right, yeah, that's exactly right. Because the reality is, and this is, again, from the tantric exposition, is that there is a moment where our individuality is absorbed back into infinite pure consciousness. That's ultimately enlightenment, Right. We, and so what, what I always say to people, stop worrying about enlightenment because if you get it, you'll never, you won't be there to know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. There's no right. one there at your graduation. <laughs> exactly right. We all want to be enlightened, but we want to hear the applause, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and we can see examples of people who thought they were enlightened or proclaimed that they were enlightened, but, and what ended up happening was that, you know, their kind of egos went crazy and became so exaggerated and... You know, there's all sorts of abusive behavior that took place and all kinds of things. And, and it speaks to really the extraordinary, incredible power that is inherent within enlightenment, if you will, within understanding our own source, right? And the problem is we get seduced by that power. I mean, we somehow think, oh, this is my power. Look what I can do. Because we, we have some of that power of omniscience and omnipotence. It's flowing through us. And just... You know, it takes just one billionth of a second to get seduced by that and to lose sight of whose power it really is. Again, that's kind of a frightening thing because you see great saints who fell off the wagon because and you think, well, God, if they did it, you know, how, I don't have a chance. Well, I always say to people, when you get there, deal with it, right? If you get that kind of power and that kind of freedom, then worry about whether you're going to lose it, right? But get it first in that sense, right? Yeah. Probably that's the significance of the story of Jesus fasting for 40 days in the desert and the devil tempting him, you know, I can, I can give you all this and I can make you so great and all that stuff. And you know, he was tempted by that, uh, that thing you just said and, you know, didn't, that's exactly didn't, right. didn't succumb you know, to it. You see the same thing with the Buddha who sat down under the Bodhi tree and, you know, he put his finger on the ground and I will not move until, until I know my own source. And, you know, you see all the every kind of seduction happening around him, and you just have to sit there in that stillness. Yeah, that's exactly right, yes. Personally, I, I think, and this is apropos of what we're talking about, yeah, I think that it will be valuable as we progress in, in our, as a spiritual culture uh, or subculture to get a clearer and clearer understanding of what enlightenment really is and what awakening really is and what the stages of it are and so on. Because what I see happening is so many people sort of having fuzzy ideas about it. You know, like if it were a, map, uh, a trip from New York to California, 
being still in Indiana and thinking they're in California or vice versa. There are, there are rarer cases where someone really does have some genuine realization but thinks they're nowhere. That's probably the more healthy and safe one. Right. Uh, again, I was reading David Godman. He was saying there was this guy who would come to see Nityananda, uh, excuse me, um, Nisargadatta, and uh, the minute he would walk in the room, he was some Dutch fellow who was spending his time running around Europe teaching Advaita, and the minute he would walk in the room, Nisargadatta would start screaming at him, you're not enlightened, you shouldn't be teaching, you know, sit down and shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, on the one hand, it's valuable to have all these people out there, I think, that, you know, a lot of people I've interviewed, it's valuable to have many voices and many points of contact, it's sort of like, when someone said the next Buddha is the Sangha, it's the thing is becoming decentralized and wider spread. On the other hand, there, there's a sort of a danger, a pitfall, where someone can be misled or, or mislead themselves into sort of, I guess, what we might call premature immaculation, you know. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Clearly that happens, and that all happens within the, the ultimately within the, the dimension of individuality, of, of ego, right? Only an ego says, I'm enlightened. The problem is, there aren't really exactly, there's not a road map, right? And if, well, I should, there's thousands of road maps how to get to God, and every one of them tells you to do something different or whatever. Each individual certainly has their own, you know, path to move through it, and I think that's part of the challenge, is you can't exactly describe it. You know, and even if you could describe it, most people who haven't had some insight to that couldn't really understand it. The entire tantric exposition is an attempt to do that, right? And the man named Abhinavagupta, who was considered the greatest saint within the non-duals uh, Shaivite tradition, was an 11th century saint. And he wrote a book, an epic, called the Tantra Loka. And basically, it was 6,000 verses, and it's called a, practice, uh, a manual for practice. And... And that he attempted to take a lot of the kind of diverse tantric practices of time and kind of codify them into one pathway, if you will. And in that process, he describes what we can do as we move through on through the path and the stages of experience that we should be able to go through. And again, all ultimately leading back to the experience of unity of, of God consciousness, right? And, and that that's a text that's in the process of being translated by a number of people around the world, it's still not really available, but enough of it's come out that we can begin to, to get some in, insight into it. So even though, to stick with this map analogy for a minute, um, you know, it's like there are thousands of different ways to go from the East Coast to the West Coast, depending, or from even to, from the East Coast to one particular spot on the West Coast, to right. Rudramandir, depending right. on where you're starting from. Right. Um, the, and these, in this day and age, you know, when the continent has been mapped so precisely, you know, we have a pretty clear understanding of what our route is and where, what road marker milestone we've reached uh, uh, in that process. But back in the Lewis and Clark days, you know, it was all very vague. We didn't really know what was out there. So I, I sort of feel like, at least in our Western culture, we're kind of in Lewis and Clark days in terms of understanding the whole roadmap and, and all the, the sort of possible scenarios you're going to encounter along the way. But, you know, these ancient traditions, perhaps such as Kashmir Shaivism and that text to which you just referred, have it mapped out pretty clearly. And, you know, we need, we need not only the translation, but the kind of adaptation of that understanding into our Western psyche. Because there's going to be a whole lot of terminology that's unfamiliar to us. And, you know, just a, 
without a lot of experience, a whole lot of things that are said that we won't be able to clearly relate to. We've never made the journey, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that's why uh, it isn't just a matter of translating the words, because there's a lot of, if you will, esoteric hidden meaning uh, built into it that and part of the problem with a person like that was such a master that his writing assumed a certain level of knowledge, you know, or, or awareness on the, the path of, of the people reading it. And it wasn't until that he wrote that in the 11th century, there was a man named Jayaratha who in the 13th century did a commentary on it. And that's one of the things that's given people access to what Avinavagupta was really trying to say in it. And so that's really right. From their perspective, this is the roadmap, right? Set your GPS here, do this, do this, do this, right? Experience this. Ultimately, what it's really saying is that we are moving back through the levels of consciousness back to its source. And if I had to define what Shaivism is really saying, that's what it's saying, is that it's we are freeing ourselves from limited consciousness, moving back through higher and higher levels of understanding so that that becomes our understanding. The only way we can do that is to really surrender our own limited understanding. And that's, that's the biggest challenge for people, is to let go of what they think they know, right, and who they think they are. And so this actually uh, had its origins back in Kashmir? Yes, uh, this being uh, my practice, you mean? Yeah, Kashmir yeah. Shaivism, I presume it's from Kashmir. And of course, you know, that's a long distance from South India, where Shankara was, and yet there seems to be a lot of similarity between the teachings. Was there a collaboration way back then, or did these things spring up um, autonomously? Uh, a little bit autonomously. The Shaivism did start in, in Kashmir. I mean, Avagupta lived in Kashmir. And really, in essence, all tantric practices really arose out of that region of, of northern India at the time, right? Over time, it spread throughout India and Asia. In southern India now, the, probably the most common practice is called Sri Vidya, which is the, the, the worship of the goddess Tripura Sundari, the goddess Kundalini. That's interesting. That's, suppose, that's what Maharshi Mahesh Yogi said that his teacher practiced was Sri Vidya. Right, yes, exactly. He, and he, so, he was a Shankaracharya of Jyotirmat. Uh-huh, right. Yeah, I didn't know that. That practice really reached its prominence around the 13th century. That was, in a sense, a, a maturation of the earlier practices. And the primary distinction in non-dual tantric practices, between that in dualistic practices, is the presence of shakti, the presence of energy, that consciousness isn't just an inert energy. It is shakti, which is the expressive power of that consciousness and which all the manifestation takes place from. That is probably the fundamental distinction between non-dual tantric practices and, and other practices, is the awakening to and to be able the palpable experience of shakti, of energy within ourselves, and to be able to follow that energy back to its own source. Because before those practices became prominent, that was not a discussion that was happening. It was just about consciousness. So it was more of a sort of an abstract thing rather than a practical thing, I I get the sense. Uh, in, in a sense, you, you could say that, because if we don't have the capacity to just grasp consciousness, we're kind of lost, but we can all feel energy. We, can all, we all know we can feel energy. Actually, my latest book was about to come out. It's called Shiva's Trident, and it's really the discussion about becoming one with the emission of the, the, emission of the powers of consciousness, which is energy, penetrating back through that emission in order to find source. That's what tantric practices are really saying, is 
that it is Shakti that gives consciousness its own power, but also gives itself its own power. And that's how manifestation, etc., creation takes place. And that as individuals, we are that individual expression of that power, and so we follow that back into ourselves, again, awakening the psychic body, etc., and allowing it to, to move back to its source that brings us, quote, realization or enlightenment. Sounds pretty simple. It does, <laughs> in a way. I mean, it's a good, but it's a nice uh, expression because, you know, if there was a path or a course of manifestation or expression, then it should be possible to do a 180 and follow that course or that path back to what, from whence it sprang. Exactly. And in fact, in Kashmir Shaivism, there are what, what are called the tattvas. Tatmas means thatness. It really means levels of consciousness. So tantric exposition says that infinite consciousness descends through 36 levels of contraction. And as it moves through these levels of contraction, then it's creating within itself those levels of, of awareness within itself. Ultimately, that's even how physical manifestation takes place. So they're describing infinite pure consciousness all the way down into inner matter and none of those things ever being separate from each other and every level of consciousness having the consciousness above it inherent within it, right? And so that's called the descent of consciousness and the spiritual sadhana is the ascent of consciousness back to that source. And so that is the awakening of Kundalini. Again, Avinavagupta, the book Tantraloka, that's what he was really talking about. So it's talking about that consciousness descends and we can ascend through that. So I always say what comes down has to go up. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've seen some physicists, one in particular I can think of, who've done a nice job in, in terms of um, mapping the correlation between what you just said, uh, you know, the, the manifestation of consciousness into more and more dense or concrete forms, and the manifestation of creation as physics understands it, you know, yeah. from the, the sort of unmanifest abstract field of pure potentiality to uh, the initial sprouting of, of diversity and then more and more complexity and diversity until you eventually get to the, to the concrete. That's exactly right. It's incredible to see how those two things are, are merging, how these modern scientists with all the microscopes and everything that they can do to discover that, how these ancient inner scientists have this understood the same thing just mm -hmm. through their own, own inner inspection. And it's amazing to see how they're coming together. So, because, yeah. you know, particularly Westerners want proof. Right. Well, that's an interesting point. The, the physicists get their proof through things like the Large Hadron Collider, you know, which costs billions of dollars to build and uses half the electricity in Geneva to run and, and so on. Even then, they're only looking at little squiggles on a, on a chart or something, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they personally are experiencing that ground of being, you right. know, that, that ultimate reality. It means they've, they've kind of, in a roundabout way... In a mathematical way of, yeah, of defining of, it. Of, yeah. of figuring out that it's there. But if you think about it, I mean, the human nervous system is a far more sophisticated instrument than the Large Hadron Collider. And yeah. if, if we can learn how to fine-tune this instrument, then that can be our path to direct living experience of that reality. That, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And fundamentally, you know, it's never a discovery of something outside of ourselves, never a discovery of something, oh, oh, I just discovered a new galaxy. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's already inherent within it, and really it's just the opening to and allowing that to shine forth and enlightened us, if you will, that that's really the work of sadhana, right? Yeah. Get out of the way, right? 
And, and the physicists would say, too, that they're not discovering anything that hasn't always been here. You know, they're just finally coming to terms with it. And, you know, in our own case, there's nothing to be developed, in a sense. There's just something to be discovered which has been lying dormant. Exactly you know, right. Without our having been able to take advantage of it. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. right. Don't yeah. mean to be doing so much of the talking, but this no, is please, you, uh, kind of inspiring uh, me. <laughs> yes, no, that's great. And, you know, e each tradition has their own approach to that and a different name for it, etc. I always quote the Dalai Lama who says, there are thousands of paths to God. Find one and become a master of it. How wonderful, because who cares what religion, whatever, you know, the, what we really all seek is the experience of, of knowing our highest self, of knowing God, if you will. And it's just been amazing and shows just the limitation of the human beings that we fight wars over God. Yeah, so it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's like uh, I sometimes think of the analogy of, you know, two guys arguing over religion uh, are like two people sitting outside a restaurant, both starving, arguing over what, what the food might taste like, you know. <laughs> they exactly just go in right. there and have a meal together, and then they don't <laughs> know. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. We always stop at the outside and eat the peanuts and, and wonder why we don't get more to life than, you know, go in, instead of having the feast inside, we get fed up, you know, filled up on the peanuts. Right? So. Yeah. Now, you've uh, alluded to a couple of practices that you teach and that I guess are um, traditionally part of Kashmir Shaivism. You've also mentioned the word Tantra, and of course, a lot of times when people hear the word Tantra, they think of sex. And I know that there's a whole wisdom to Tantra, which has little or nothing to do with sex. Um, so could you explain a little bit what Tantra is and how that fits into Kashmir Shaivism as a practice? The Tantric scripture are derived from what are called the Agamas. Agamas are revealed texts. You know, it's Moses finding the, the like tablet. Cognized, right? sort of. The, the cognized, right. right. And, and so the ancient Tantric exposition scripture was the expression of that reveals uh, awareness, if you will. So there's lots of different traditions that emerged out of the expression of, of the Tantras. And what does the word Tantra itself mean? That's a really good question. How do you answer Tantra? One way you understand it is called a consent, it would be defined as a continuous thread, right? And so what they're really saying is there's a continuous thread of knowledge or of consciousness that moves through life. Every kind of tradition interpreted by, you know, gurus in different traditions, you know, kind of took their own spin on, on the stuff and had their own, their own teachings. And there are, within tantric tradition, the tantric scripture, the discussion of, of sexual union as part of a spiritual practice. So there's no exactly denying that that's part of it. It's always discussed is one of the, the techniques, but, but certainly not a primary technique. And, and the problem, of course, is as it came into America, then that was the kind of the main thing that was, that was picked up on. Would it be correct to say that since that's part of life for most people, then it needed to be put in a spiritual context and the sort of the evolutionary way of going about it needed to be uh, taught? And so, fine, there's this, if, if, you know, here's this teaching to turn this into a more evolutionary thing, but obviously it's not the totality of life, so there's all this other teaching to pertain to all the other aspects of life. Yeah, I, I think that's very well said, Rick. And, and I think one of the things, the dis distinction I think would be also with this, is that for most people, sex is about desire. 
the Tantra's sexual activity, sexual union within the most authentic traditions is about union, about recognizing. So there's no desire left. There's only the fulfillment, the, the, full, the fullness of, of union. Just to be very explicit, tantric sex is there's no ejaculation. You know, the, the, that, that inner energy is, is resurfaced back inside all strictly for the purpose of sending it back home, if you will, sending it back to its own source. Right. So it wasn't different than any of the other practices, the different meditation practices or breathing techniques, etc. It was all one type of thing. So, okay, you're generating this life force in you, but instead of expressing it to fulfill some limited desire, you are reabsorbing it back into yourself to know its source. You became a Swami about 10 years ago or something, as I understand it? Yeah, uh, 2001. And Chaitanya didn't make you a Swami, as I heard in, your, in that radio interview I listened to. I don't, you, you can tell me why or not. I, I don't, uh, it doesn't really matter. But, so you, you became a Swami by, by virtue of some um, woman uh, in yes. New York that was a, a Swami. A woman in New York named Maya Yoga Shakti. When I moved to Berkeley in 2001, I came here and started my own center. And I, I did make a break with Chaitanya around that time. And it was after that that I had wanted to take sannyas for a long time, and that was not something that he, up to that point, had conferred on anyone. His reason, that's his business, etc., you know, but it was important to me, and so about a year after I moved here, I, it's the, the miracle of modern-day technology. To be honest, I kind of Googled sannyas, and etc., and, and basically ultimately found this woman named Mayoga Shakti, who lived in New York City. She actually had met Rudy a long, long time ago, and I wrote her, explained who I was and what I had done and my practice and why I wanted to take sannyas. And I was really clear, I'm not looking for a teacher. I'm looking for somebody who can confer that on me because it's something that is my final formal way of declaring my service to God. Only a Swami can confer sannyas, swamihood on, on another person. So you can't just say, okay, now Swami. So she said, Luke, you come, I'll meet you. If I feel this is something that you're worthy of, then I'll make that, you know, I can confer that. So. Well, I respect that you, you took it seriously and respected the, the tradition. I mean, there are all these people who came out of Osho, you know, call, calling themselves Swami. And, and I thought, how are they Swamis, you know? I mean, it's, didn't see, it seemed to kind of water it down a bit. Yeah, and, you know, the thing that mostly amazes me is people who's, who used to be Swamis. Right. I meet all these people, oh, I, I was a Swami. Well, how do you give your life to God and then take it back? You know, just like with the whole sex thing, and even becoming Swami was just, you know, something that you did, and, you know, it was very, in a sense, of, unfortunately for most people, not certainly not everyone. The, the robes uh, are kind of attractive. Exactly right. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, when Rudy was teaching, and really at the strength of the last few years of his life, you know, we were, we were all these kids coming out of the, the drug phase, etc. And while Rudy taught what he did, he brought none of the container of India with him, right? Mm -hmm. he, he was allergic to it because he knew the kind of superficiality of what he saw, what was happening in America. You know, everybody right. was, but you know, shaving their head. Hare Krishnas. And, and, Hare Krishnas yeah. and, you know, et cetera. And so we didn't chant. We didn't do anything like that. And it was intentional on his part because he was interested in the content and not the container. And he recognized how quickly people can get hooked into the superficial aspects of whatever. So, so you know, and even with Shaivism, that was not something that Rudy studied. In fact, it was really 
a few years after his death that it really became to, to light. All the translations had been lost, so it was only in the early 70s that we became more aware of it. And the extraordinary thing for me is how clear and in concert Rudy's teaching were with Tantric Shaivism, even though he never read the scripture, he never used the language, it's just extraordinary. And even now, 40 years later, I'm reading you know, and studying some of the highest Tantric texts that are available, and I'm reading and I'm saying, oh, that's what he meant, right? But that so was the Nityananda and Muktananda tradition, wasn't it? Well, Nityananda certainly didn't speak of Shaivism or you know, anything like that. It was Muktananda who, again, in the early 70s, began to be aware of this, these ancient Tantric Shaivite scriptures. They were being translated. Of course, he could, he could read the Sanskrit. And he was the person who was saying, this is our practice. This is what Nityananda gave to us, even though Nityananda never used the terms. So you have to credit Muktananda from the spiritual teacher point of view as one of the key people who introduced Shaivism to, uh, to the Western world. There was a man named Swami Lakshmanju who uh, lived in Kashmir. And yeah, he was a good friend of Maharishi's. Uh, yes, exactly yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And he was considered part of the living tradition, you know, the last of the, of, of the living tradition of Shaivism. Muktananda spent some time with him, but he was one of the persons, again, not a Westerner, who was instrumental in this text, the scripture beginning to be uh, brought out. Muktananda recognized the same thing, is, is that this practice that he was now the lineage carrier of was, in fact, Tantric Shaivism, even though Muktananda never, you know, never said a thing like that. So, it yeah. just kind of fit with their their particular experience and teaching, it articulated it nicely, and they just, so they just discovered this mother load of, of wisdom. That's right. It's a very sophisticated framework. Yeah. But having said that, what's important is that the practice of, of Kundalini Yoga, of, of awakening the Kundalini, is intrinsic to Tantric Shaiva's practices. That is what it's really describing. So even though Muktananda, Rudi, these people didn't talk about it from that perspective, they talked about the awakening of Kundalini and Shaktipat. The Tantraloka that I mentioned, there, there are 37 chapters. One of the key chapters is about Shaktipat. So as a, not to jump around, but as a Swami, does that imply that you are a recluse, a single man, or are you married? No, I, I am not married, but I, I've lived with a, my partner, Sonia, for 25 years. There is a term called Grahastya Sanyas, which means householder. And that is what my formal title would be. In some circles, that would be one step down from the, the highest uh, level of sannyas. The reality is that there are five levels of sannyas that most Hindus would go through. The ultimate sannyas is the leaving of, of the family, the leaving of all worldly goods, right? Not necessarily even correlate to spiritual advancement. And so that's part of the confusion around the whole thing as well. You can be living in the jungle and be a lot more attached to things than some guy who's running a business, you know? Exactly right, <laughs> yes. So celibacy, you know, vegetarianism, all these things are different parts of different levels of sannyas. And to be honest, in the tantric tradition, sannyas was not a, a big deal. It wasn't even part of the discussion because they're saying there's nothing to be rejected, or etc., right? And so... Sannyas is, in a sense, a rejection of some. It's a giving up of something. And yet, Lakshmanju became a Swami, 
And I think for those of us in the tantric tradition, understand that really it is this it is the surrendering of our limited self is what sannyas really means to us and i think that's an important thing to do and that's why i'm always scratching my head when somebody says i used to be a swami <laughs> that's called a being an indian giver right <laughs> right i want myself right. back i want myself back exactly right <laughs> and of course a person can become a swami without really having surrendered their self to god and they can also surrender their self to god without being a swami i mean external appearances really that, that's are right, pretty, yeah. they can be pretty meaningless sometimes. Yeah, and you know, the reality is you can go to India and for five bucks, get it, become corner, a swami. You, you can become a swami, just find somebody <laughs> that's gone through it and, you know, pay them a little money and they do it. And, you know, it's, it's like everything else. There's levels of authenticity and levels of superficiality within everything. But I personally took the vows and try to live to those vows as the tether to myself, to tether to uh, the tether to my commitment to trying to, to serve God. It was an important thing for me. And, what are the uh, vows? Well, they're lengthy, right? Oh, okay. uh, but yeah, but fundamentally, and to be honest, you know, I'm sitting there with this Indian woman. She's throwing all this stuff out. You know, most of it, you don't understand it. I basically all of a sudden started hearing this mantra in myself. What I kept saying every time she, you're supposed to repeat what she's saying. Well, I kept repeating, I surrender myself completely to you, God. Do with me as you wish. And in a sense, that was my vow that I was repeating in myself because I didn't understand a lot of what she was saying, you know. Uh, right. So, okay, that's good. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that pretty much takes care of everything. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> surrender yeah. myself completely. Do with me as you wish. That's right. You know? yes. yeah. Everything else would just be details of the same thing. Yeah, because ultimately, I mean, taking sannyas, I believe, from my perspective, is about is about serving God. Right. And you have to surrender yourself in order to do that. Is there anything we haven't covered in terms of Kashmir Shaivism or uh, anything in your teaching that you feel we should cover? I don't think so. I think you've done a really good job of kind of navigating through it. You know, we could spend days talking about it in detail, but I feel like you've asked really great questions to give people an insight into it. So you're out there in Berkeley. This Rudra Mandir looks like a pretty neat place. I mean, it's 20,000 square foot building, and you've got all this stuff going on there, not all of which is directly related to what you do, right. but you kind of rent out the space to uh, help pay for the building, and it's, it sounds like a real lively scene. Yeah, it, it's a wonderful thing, 20,000 square feet, and, and we acquired the building as the home for our own meditation practice for Trikashala. Like most places, Berkeley's very expensive, and so part of the way we pay for the mortgage is we created this spiritual and healing center and 99% of what goes on here is not our particular practice and it was very important to us that that people coming to Rudra Mandir not think oh I'm going to an ashram or I'm going I'm getting involved in that particular practice in fact most people who come here don't really know about me or about the, the underground current uh, practice that goes on I did name it after Rudy Rudra with uh, Rudrananda was his name. Mandir means temple. It means the place that spirit takes up residence. We have every kind of activity, massage therapy, uh, psychology workshops, you name it, it happens here. And it's wonderful. And it was part of my vision when I first moved to Berkeley was to have a center like this. And to be, you know, I, I think we're very pleased because Rudra Mandir has become a very uh, important place in the East Bay for people to to get in contact with themselves. Whatever modality they use is, is not that important. So, 
Yeah, I just yeah. got some email from Terry Patton. I'm on his mailing list. I noticed he was giving some kind of workshop there. Or yeah, so. yeah, they're here all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. that that's a, quite an accomplishment. I mean, it must have been uh, no small feet to pull that off, you know, get that it, thing. It, it wasn't, and it was a lot of work and a lot of sacrifice. We bought the building right, and then basically the economic crash kind of took place. So that was a challenge. But the amazing thing for us is that as everything else was going down, our business at Ruger, my dear, was just edging up, and it, it hadn't stopped. And it just speaks to the, the authenticity of what's going on here and the, and the, the need. And so we were very pleased that with a very large mortgage, we were able to, to make it by the first few years. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of salaries or anything like that in the first few years. But just the opportunity to do it and provide a place for people to, to know themselves is, is a big part of what's important for me. Well, I hope it continues to thrive. It, it seems like uh, such a wholesome and valuable thing. You know, it must be preventing the next big earthquake from striking California <laughs> by its very existence. <laughs> well, let's hope, yes. Uh, let's hope, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, we enjoy it. We're very pleased and we're part of it. And one of the really great things we always hear is that people who come in, say they come in for a three- or four-day workshop, I mean, inevitably, the leaders come to us like the second day and they say, you know, everything I planned that I needed to do the first day in order to kind of get people in contact with them. See, man, we just moved through right through that stuff because, the, if you will, the spirit is yeah. so strong, the, the energy is so strong that people can settle in really fast. So that's wonderful to, to hear that like that. I'm sure yeah. it is. I mean, you know, there are ancient temples in India where people have been doing this intense worship for thousands of years, and, you know, the, the Shakti in those places is just so... That's right. you know, lively, so potent, yeah. um, you know, that it's transformative just to be there. So I'm sure you're building something like that there. And a lot of people are contributing to it. So we're, we're yeah. pleased and, you know, and it's another way for me to honor my teacher and have something like this in his honor. So Yeah, it's really cool. In terms of your specific activity there, people want to get in touch with you. I'll be linking to your websites and it's probably obvious on your websites how to get in touch with you and you know, yeah. what, what kind of things you have going on. They're very nicely designed websites, by the way. Well, thank Just, you very much. Yeah, very, yeah. they beautiful. can either go through the Rudramandir website or trikashala.com, and, and they're both there. And, yeah, it describes what we do in terms of our daily practices, and I do a number of retreats here in Berkeley at Rudramandir each year. I go to Hawaii for four weeks uh, each year and do a, a long-term immersion there. So lots of different ways that people can en engage with us here. Great. What I found with doing this interview show is that, you know, very often people will resonate with a particular teacher that I interview and they'll come from all over the place. To, yeah. Like a, yeah. I have this lady in Atlanta just went up to British Columbia to do a, a retreat with a fellow up there. Hopefully that will happen. And uh, I will be linking to your several books that you've written from your page on batgap.com um, and uh, a little description of you there and so on. So Hopefully you'll experience the bat gap bump. Well, we appreciate it and really been, you know, enjoyed this discussion. And, uh, uh, you know, what you're doing is really wonderful. You're bringing a lot of insight to a lot of people. That's really wonderful. Well, I'm yeah. having a lot of fun with it. It's, it's very Great. enriching for me. Very good. Let me make a couple of final concluding remarks. Speaking now to those who've been listening or watching, uh, this has been an, an interview in an ongoing series. There are nearly 200 of them archived now uh, at batgap.com. You'll see them listed in the right-hand column alphabetically, and there's a drop-down menu under other stuff where you can see them listed chronologically in terms of the order that I did them. So in addition to being able to watch videos of them, which are embedded there, 
and incidentally, and just in case you don't know this, when you watch an embedded video, there's always a little button that looks like a gear that you can click on, and it enables you to bump up the resolution to higher quality. And then there's another little thing that usually looks like a little square, and if you click that, it expands it out so you can watch it uh, you know, full screen rather than just in a little window, in case right. people didn't know that. Right. Good, to, good to know. Uh, there's also a link to an audio podcast there. All these interviews are available as an iTunes podcast. There is a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking uh, if they feel inspired to do so. And uh, there's a, a tab that you can use to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. There's also a discussion group in, in a forum there, and each uh, teacher that I interview has an, their own little page set up for discussion. And um, there's sort of areas for general discussion or whatever. So feel free to check all that out. And thank you for listening or watching. Thank you again, uh, Nataji. And uh, we'll see you all next week. As I mentioned earlier, I'll be interviewing David Godman next time, um, who's written a lot of well-known and voluminous books about various saints, including a 1,200-page book about Papaji entitled Nothing Ever Happened. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Yeah. I really appreciate your time with me and honored to be on your show. Good. Thanks a lot. And thanks to Ellen, who set this up for us. Yes, very good. Yes. Thanks right. a lot. Yes. Take care of yourself. Okay. Thanks, Swamiji. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.